hymnals. You can't snap it at the end. <laughs> Click the PowerPoint off. It doesn't really have the same effect, does it? No, no, I liked it. The God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. <laughs> that is some aggressive song leading, Mike. We appreciate it. <laughs> Speaking of aggressive song leading, the, the psalm book, the hymn book of Israel begins with a couple of doozies. The first one is wisdom about what kind of life are you going to live? And the second one is to the nations. Are you going to live eternal life? Or are you going to be crushed by your creator um, when he comes in the flesh to rule? Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And then, the, then, then it, it's kind of funny to God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Uh, the Bible doesn't make a big deal about laughter, but in Psalm 2, you've got God laughing at the best the nations can bring against him. It's like in, uh, in Genesis 11 when God says, let us go down and see what they're doing, building this tower up to the heavens. Let's, let's go down there and see. It's a joke. <laughs> Man's biggest and best and highest, God has to make a long trip down to see what man's doing. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. That's the master, Adonai. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them with his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Know where that is? That's Jerusalem. That's on planet Earth. That's a particular piece of real estate that God has promised to his people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the sons of Jacob. And so on Zion is where his king is going to rule, and then that king speaks in Psalm 2-7. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. I don't want that to happen to me. So there's your wisdom. If you don't want to be crushed and shattered, then uh, kiss the sun. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. See, God is a loving God. He, he gives you a warning. This is coming. You're not going to be able to duck it or shirk it. Therefore, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord, that's Yahweh, with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, literally, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Yet how happy, literally happy, are all who take refuge in him. May God bless us with wisdom from his precious words so that we know how to properly respond to our creator. We're here to fellowship with God and his word. It's a high calling. It's a wonderful privilege. It's a pretty high bar to reach to, to come to the end of the day, a hard work day, and spend some time in some concentration and thinking through together the implications of God's word and his commands for us. And we need a supernatural enablement from the spirit of God. So let's seek that in prayer. If you have unconfessed sin, I promise you are not going to enjoy the filling ministry of the spirit with the word. And so you should confess your sins to God and, uh, in, in anticipation of him blessing you and edifying you with that treasure of his self-disclosure. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you that the labor for our day as believer priests to come to you in your heavenly temple right now, the labor is the blood of Jesus Christ. And you wash us clean because of his grace, because of your character. And we praise you for that grace to us. We could never earn it or deserve it. And we will always be beholden to your mercy, to your kindness, to your greatness on our behalf. And Father, we come to you as your little children tonight to know you, not to know about you, but to know you, your expectations, and in knowing to be the men and the women you want us to be. I pray it'll be so by your Spirit's power in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 28 would be a good place to let your Bible fall gently open to tonight. little stock photograph in front of you to orient our thinking tonight. Anybody know what my picture is a picture of? It's okay to kind of interact a little bit tonight. I'm going to welcome it throughout the evening. And I don't just mean saying amen. I mean, what are you looking at in that picture besides uh, a, a carnival? Okay. A carousel. A specific aspect of that carnival device is in my mind. What do you have at the carousel? Huh? Well, Mark just cut right to the chase, the brass ring. Young people, by show of hands, who knows what the brass ring is all about at a carousel? Not so young or anybody else, who knows what the brass ring is about at the carousel? See, because here's the thing. Not too long ago, this was a fun ride for even young adults. And now it's a kiddie thing, Right? There was a time when the carousel, I'm sorry, the carousel down at um, uh, uh, Watch Hill was the thing. I'm sure of it. There was also a a place you could go and have soda pop. (laughs) It was a counter with a guy in a paper hat or a a cloth hat, garrison style hat, and he would serve you up a soda pop. And it it could be a cherry flavor or something else. We could have whipped cream. It was a big deal. It cost a couple pennies. I mean, there was a big deal uh, with the carousel once. But what was the thing about the carousel? Right there in the foreground, you see a little poster. A free ride to the holder of the brass ring. The brass ring is a thing. I never saw it. I was never, but you older folks, young at heart, you know what the brass ring is. If you ride the carousel, at some point during your session... There's a little arm that swings out, just barely in reach, and at the end of that arm is a little brass ring that would roll out, right? Anybody ever get one? It's a legend to us. We know this existed, we've just never seen it. What you would do is you'd lean off old Bess or whatever that horse you were on, or I usually try to ride the winged lion or something, but anyway, um, you lean out and you grab it, and what does the clown poster tell you? Well, it's supposed to be a little kid. What does the poster tell you? If you get it, you get a free ride. And so that's the origin of a a phrase in our culture, the brass ring. The brass ring is the goal. The brass ring is the thing you want to get. The brass ring captivates the imaginations of the little children right around 1900. The brass ring. And so I'm introducing our mission discussion tonight with the concept of the brass ring because 
it makes us think about our goals. What are we after in life? What are you leaning forward? What are you anticipating? That carousel spins around, the little kid is looking for it because he knows, his mom said, look for it. And so first you have to learn to look for the, the objective and then you have to be in the right position. Don't get on an inside horse, you won't get it. You gotta be on the outside horse. So you position yourself to get the goal and then it's this fun game. It's basically a game kids used to play. Well, um, tonight, if we think about what Jesus Christ has told us, he wants us to do until he comes back to occupy our time in this age. If we think about the mission statement that Jesus Christ has given us, for example, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. If you think about it, and then you decide to go about and do it, there are a lot of things that are prior to the components of the mission statement. There are implications. Now, that's a big word. If you know what an implication is, I'm not trying to mansplain. <laughs> anybody know what that means? Everybody, anybody read a newspaper? Okay. Um, uh, I'm not trying to dumb things down, but a lot of people may not know this word implication. It's where you get the word imply. A lot of times in our culture, I hear people use the word infer when they mean imply. Infer is when you are deriving something someone else is saying. I infer from your statement this implies when you're making a statement that carries certain connotations that someone might infer. Implication, imply, means that I don't directly say the thing you have to do, but it's, it's packed in to what I do say. I, I say something that I specify, and with that is something that I imply. Let me give you an example. If uh, this, uh, I had to learn this the hard way when I was a little kid. My dad once told me to mop the kitchen floor. Anybody want to tell me what an implication was and what he said about mopping the kitchen floor? Yeah. Okay, so implied uh, not, not after your next birthday, but now, like today, right? Okay, yeah. There was a time hack in that implied, what he said, for sure. Where he may not have given me a time, but there would have been such a time if, we wait, if I waited long enough where I did not do it. And, and I could always say, well, I didn't do it yet. He's like, it's been three days, right? <laughs> implied time. What's another implication? Someone tells you to mop the floor. Okay, he wants, it, he wants it to look like it has been mopped. Don't just do it and then the outcome is that your feet are stuck to the floor because you didn't do it well. Think about the mechanics of mopping. Think about a little boy or not so little boy. You've got to work hard. Okay, there's implied effort. What else? What do you have to do in order to mop the floor? There's got to be water. Thankfully, I didn't have to haul from the, from the creek. I could just fill it up in the faucet. So I, I, he's not applying water haul. He's applying from the, from the faucet. Um, now think about this. Don't you have to sweep first? And see, all of you cleaners know. You're like, oh, yeah. Oh, wait a second, Pastor Dave. Don't tell us that you didn't sweep the floor before you mopped it so that you had sand, sand water that you made that didn't actually get cleaned up. But it got swished around a lot. The implication of mop is sweep and with the dustpan. And we didn't say do that. That's like uh, if I if I tell you to uh, to go heat up a, a frozen pizza in the oven. What what are, what's implied? Take it out of the box. Of the box. <laughs> and the plastic. the plastic. Don't put it in there with the plastic because this is to to eat, not to bomb the house with melted plastic. Smell, right? 
implications. These are implied things. And I think that's what I want to talk about tonight with the Great Commission. There are some implications that you can't escape. You cannot lobster out of these things. That means go backwards or crawfish. You can't back out of these things. We have to embrace the implications of the Great Commission. My favorite one is that if I'm going to baptize people and if I'm going to teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded, I'm going to have to talk to them. I'm going to actually have to talk to people who have not been baptized and do not yet know how to keep Jesus' commands. I wonder where we'll find any of those people. Well, not probably many people here. They're, we're going to continue to teach, to observe. That's kind of what I'm doing tonight. But um, not just here. It's going to be all over the place. And so um, here's, the, here's what I'm trying to do with On Mission. If you watch the Apostle Paul's letters, what he says in the book of Acts, very often he uses doors language, open door. He uses the language of the open door. Are you familiar with this idea? Usually in our Christian culture, when we say open door, we mean to buying a house or moving or getting a job or something that we're concerned about for our needs and we're trusting God with our needs. And so we use open doors language, but that's not how Paul uses it. When Paul says, pray that a door will be open for me, he's talking about the mission. He's talking about the, the ministry of the gospel, that we'll be, a door will be open to us for ministry among the Macedonians. Pray that a door will be open to us for the gospel. Uh, and and it's, all, it's consistently that language. And I have read enough of Paul lately to kind of incorporate that. I talk about open doors a lot now because guess what happens if God doesn't open the door to ministry? Or I'm ringing the doorbell, I'm knocking on the door, and, and it, it's not open because really it's his work. It's God's work. Now, don't let that dampen your efforts. Just understand the Lord of the harvest is going to have to do the calling of those to harvest. He's going to have to do the equipping of you to go into the harvest. And that's what Jesus says, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers. I mean, you can see a, a ripe field ready for plucking, but the Lord of the harvest has to to put you in the field to do the work. And that's what you're asking for. God, put me in. Put me in, coach. I, wanna, I want to have a cut in this work that you're doing, whatever the cut is. Now, what I'm trying to do with On Mission regarding open doors is that when God does swing a door open because we've been praying for it constantly, when he does, you're there and saying, I will go through this door. I'll be ready to say the words that I need to say. I will be thinking of the Lord and therefore his thinking about these people I'm looking at instead of thinking about myself and how I'm being perceived or thinking about them and whether I like them or not or the other things that distract us from our mission. My prayer is that when the door opens, the workers are ready with their little harvest bags and they're ready to go in and pluck some of that ripe harvest. That's what on mission is intending to do because I'm told in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 that the spiritual gifts especially the communicators are here to equip you the saints for the ministry of service so that you can can build the body of Christ and I think that's exactly what we're talking about here in terms of the mission so let's review our mission statement go and make disciples of all the nations is the command of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 28 verse 19 I believe it's best considered a compound verbal command where you have a participle followed by a finite verb, go and make disciples, disciple them. And so the idea is in one action, go and make disciples. 
In other words, uh, you're looking at each other, you're disciples already, get away from each other enough to go find other people that you can make disciples with. It doesn't mean you're not associating with each other. It just means that you need to start here where there are no prospects and go where there are prospects. And it doesn't mean you have to go all the way to India, although Thomas heard Jesus say this, and he did go all the way to India. It doesn't mean that you have to be a foreign missionary. You are a citizen of heaven. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you already are a foreign missionary. You already are on foreign soil. Now, you may not embrace that. That may not be the sense of your identity because of your maturity level. Maybe you don't understand well enough yet that you really are a citizen of heaven and that the lesser concerns we have like American identity and politics, while important, don't rise to the level of my heavenly citizenship. Maybe you don't get that yet, but it's true. You're already a foreign missionary. You might, be, uh, you might, might be, uh, look like somebody wearing dad's clothes, a little kid wearing, wearing dad's clothes and the sleeves don't fit yet and you've got to grow up into this, but that's what you are. Your, uh, your card in your pocket says foreign agent of the king uh, whose coming kingdom is inevitable. And, and that makes you an enemy combatant. I can keep going with this illustration. It really does make you an enemy combatant on, on enemy soil. Not just here in the United States, wherever you go in the world because the enemy of God has deceived the nations and he's opposed to your mission. But the command is go and make disciples of all the nations. And then we have the means by baptizing them. How do you make disciples? Not any way you want. It's not willy-nilly. It's specified. Specified task in the general command, specified task, baptizing them. Into the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The other specified task in order to make disciples is to teach them. Mathe tuo is the word to disciple, and it means to turn someone into a disciple. The way you do it is an initiation rite, that is the conclusion of a process, and we call it baptism, and an ongoing responsibility that you and I will never outgrow. I need to be disciple-made in terms of being taught to observe all that Jesus commanded. You need to be taught. We are constantly being taught. The Apostle Peter is present when Jesus says this. He needs a refresher crash course from the Apostle Paul not many years later in, um, in um, um, Antioch, as we read about in Galatians chapter 2. Peter has forgotten what we're doing with the gospel to the Gentiles, and he's separated from them because of the, the, the legalists that have come from Jerusalem, and Paul has to call him out publicly. Peter had to have a refresher to keep all that Jesus had commanded. We all need this. It's an ongoing, I'm saying it's an ongoing ministry, and that's why the teaching will never end until Jesus, our great shepherd, calls us to himself. But So the means that we make disciples is baptizing and teaching, and it's not just teaching them his commands, that would be easy. We could make a list. Just memorize the list. But he doesn't say teach them to memorize my commands. He says teach them to keep my commands. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And then the promise, behold, I'm with you all the days until the conclusion of the age. Amen. So just to refresh what the mission statement this is, the most, the, the most in, involved statement of the mission, Jesus Christ gave his disciples who became the apostles the pillars that began the church. On this rock, I will build my church, Jesus says in Matthew 16. Um, This is uh, his marching orders. And again, I'm asking the question, baptizing and teaching, what are the implications? What are the implied tasks that if I'm really going to go do this? I like to backwards plan. You know how to backwards plan? 
Let me give you an example. When's the last time, think about the last time you took a flight, you flew on an airplane. Has anybody flown on an airplane in the last year? Last year or so? Okay. Anybody fly low in a, in a car? <laughs> All right. So you're going to take an airplane trip. Now, you've got to figure out to get your tickets. You've got to go figure out the date and the, the flight you can stand to, to be on at the airport you could drive to or, you know, it has to be a close enough airport. You got to do all that stuff. And finally, you nail it down. This is the date. And if you're like me, you don't buy a ticket that's got flexibility because that's double. That's, that's expensive. So you just make sure you don't miss that flight or you get insurance or something. But I'm just saying, I buy the cheapest possible airline ticket that I can stand to drive to because uh, God's resources have to be stewarded and so forth. So, so I've, I've got to make that flight. You with me? Now that sets a whole lot of things that are implied before I get on that airplane. Like, arrive at the gate before the plane flies away. Now, this is called backwards planning. You've got your thing that has to happen. This is the end state. Fly at 9 o'clock. All right. So before 9 o'clock, what's the thing right before I fly? Be at the gate with a boarding pass and identification because you have to get on the plane. You have to get through security on the other end, too, when you fly back. So you may be through security, but you need to have your license with you. Again, you've got to think these little details through. So, so you're, you don't want to go to the Connecticut DMV in Texas. It doesn't exist. So you really need that credential to get back on the airplane. So, so the next step before you get to, to the boarding uh, pass at the, at the terminal is you've got to go through security. There are steps to prepare to go through security. If you have, gentlemen, if you have a knife that you don't want to give away to a random stranger... You need to make sure that that knife is put away somewhere else before it gets to the, 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 the security zone. I have given away more than one knife and a forty caliber pistol magazine, uh, not the gun, but the, but the magazine, uh, to random strangers. The, the, that pistol thing, I actually missed the flight on that one, but um, there's all these steps. Now, I'm not going to take you through the whole process, but look at all the things you have to do. That it's two weeks, our flight is two weeks out. I've got to go through all these steps to make sure I get on the plane and fly away. And some of you may have never flown before and you're like, I don't want to do all that. Or maybe you've never been an adult and arranged it. You're just like, why are mom and dad always cranky at the airport? Okay, because, because we've got to get there. It's going to fly away. We don't have insurance. We've got, to, we've got to meet that flight. Now, the airline has insurance. If they cancel the flight, they'll get us. They'll take care of it. But I don't. If I miss it, then it's on me. So anyway, the point is that um, when you have a stated end state like baptize them, that's the end of a process. We need to think through, okay, Lord, to baptize them, what needs to happen? In some, let me show you. In some religious traditions, what needs to happen is procreation. We need to have a baby, then we can baptize. Because, you know, like Jesus never said, I, that's controversial. I'm just saying, um, what do you need in order to baptize someone? Well, they've got to be in the water with you. Let's start at, let's start at the end state of, of the event. I'm going to baptize someone. They've got to be down in the water with me and it not be weird. Right? So I've got my evangelism prospect, my, my baptism, I'm going to make a disciple out of this person from, from such and such nation. 
I know that this ends up, this process ends up with, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And eventually we bring them up. Right. We know that's the end state. for the, But what's that process look like? They're down in the water with me. I ask them a question. They publicly proclaim the way I do it. We publicly proclaim why I'm being baptized. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have eternal life, and this is a demonstration of that life I already received. I have the Holy Spirit in me, you know, whatever we say. And then let's back it up to there. They've got to choose to do it. Notice it doesn't say, y'all be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's active voice. You baptize them. Baptize them. But it, it doesn't mean that we do it against anyone's will. I think that's really, actually, historically, that's really important. I believe way too many baptisms in church history have been against someone's will. Or I shouldn't say against their will, it's just there's not a will functioning because of the christening tradition. We're going to baptize somebody that hasn't believed. You know, in the interest of them believing. This is part of our process. We're going to make a disciple out of this baby, and they're going to grow up to... And so that's, that's been a justification for, for infant baptism. But, but I'm talking about believer's baptism that you find with like the Ethiopian eunuch. Hey, what's, there's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? And Philip's like, all right, let's do that. I had an event like that in my life. I had some, a, a, a beloved friend, someone very important in my life say, hey, Dave, there's water. And I'm like, have you not been baptized? Oh, well, let's do that. And it, it, was, it was awesome. It, these awesome opportunities that lo- the Lord brings us. Um, but what are the implied tasks? There are all, so many things that have to be done before we can get to this end state, this victory lap, and baptize someone. What do we need to do to baptize an unbeliever? I mean a believer, sorry. Don't baptize an unbeliever. To baptize a believer, they need to be a believer. <laughs> How does that happen? Well, remember I said I skipped all the way to the beginning of this process and said you have to what? You got to talk to them, right? See, you have to talk to someone. And then you don't don't mess up like I've messed up so many times and and get the gospel in there in that first visit where the conversation is is done. And uh, you may not have shut the door, but they did. And this isn't going to be a conversation we're going to have anymore. Friends, it's not going to be a Billy Graham event almost ever. It's almost never going to be someone come up to you and say, would you tell me how I could have eternal life? I mean, that happens sometimes. But what's really going to happen for the most part is you're going to love someone. You're going to take an interest in someone. You're going to talk to that person. And right away, the first impression they have of you is this person cares. This is a caring person person of goodwill who has an attractive concern in her, a, a desire for the best and the other in this man that's talking to me. That's the first impression the person's going to have. And it may be an impression that is uh, not, you may not even know you're throwing that impression around, but that's what you're doing. You're actually inviting someone who doesn't have your heavenly father as her heavenly father. You're inviting her to the family. You're inviting her to a relationship that you have. So you've got to talk to them, but it's not just talk to somebody. Hey, how's your day? Boop. Fine, thanks. Boop. Um, don't ask the person at, at the checkout when they get off work. That's kind of, you know, that, that might be taken the wrong way. So uh, what time do you get off work? Here in 15 minutes. I don't want to tell you that. <laughs> 
that's looking like the wrong kind of conversation, right? So it's more general, like, how's your day going? It's a great question to ask. You will catch New Englanders off guard so much if you ask them how their day's going. They'll look at you kind of sideways like, are you putting me on? And when you, when you actually mean it and they can tell you mean it, guess what they do? Defenses come down. They're like, oh, this is somebody that's actually being nice to me. And this culture is so mixed. It's so heterogeneous and homogenized. Who knows who you're going to encounter as you go about your life. But if you show through an interest, through, through a conversation, your interest in someone, you open the door to an ongoing, perhaps long, long, 20-year process that ends in a baptism. You can't force it. The doors shut so easily when we try to force the conversation. When we try to point out the differences. Oh, well, you think this way, but I think this way. Hmm. Start to get a little friction, a little, get a little uncomfortable in the conversation. Seems like we don't have a lot of shared interests. I feel like I'm about to get judged by this person. <laughs> Garage door comes down. Right? That's, that's how we are. Because life's too short. I, I've got to negotiate my life. I've got to get around. I've got to get, do what I've got to do. And this person is introducing controversy that I can't manage that right now. I've got to deal with the kids at home and, you know, how people are, are loaded up. So what I'm saying is, the way we engage people, the way we demonstrate the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for them is actually, um, it's, it's, a, it's a thoughtful thing to do, but it's not hard. It's not hard. You just have to be wise about it. You just have to know that you are coming as an alien to foreigners, to you. You are, you are as foreign from an unbeliever as you can be in terms of the way you think about life and reality. But the differences aren't things that we worry about so often we get caught up in, like uh, what, what color jersey you're wearing. Well, that may be important. Or how you vote. I think that has life or death consequences, but it's not eternal life or death. The issue at hand in engaging the stranger that becomes someone that knows you care about them, the way you talk to Zacchaeus and you tell that person in an alternate lifestyle like Zacchaeus was a was a swindler he was a thief from his people the way you engage someone in that that sinful pattern of life who's an unbeliever is demonstrating the care of the Lord Jesus Christ that's what we talked about first hour on Sunday to be um, someone who shares Christ with another person you actually have to care about them now I could try to teach you how to pretend to care about people but um, that would be stupid. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. If I pretend to care about people, what happens? If I pretend to care about someone, what, what happens? Yeah. Bogus. When I tell someone about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, I better be able, I may not do it because of awkwardness, but I better be able to say, I love you to that person. Can you do that? Can you love someone? I didn't say approve of alternate sinfulness. I didn't say approve of self-destructive patterns. I didn't say uh, enable wickedness. I said, can you tell the person I love you and mean what you mean by that, meaning I want God's eternal best for you. Gold, Peter says at the beautiful gate, gold and silver I don't have, but what I have I give you. Stand up and walk. Are you carrying eternal wealth? 
with you in your relationship with God to share that in your care for someone else. I have something that I can't give away enough of it because I have an infinite supply. I don't need to hoard it. In fact, I'll lose something of what I have to give if I hoard it. I've got to give it. And it's eternal life. It's the gospel. It's the message of Christ. Is that your attitude? Is that how you see people? Because this is an implied task in baptism to actually care for those people. That's the big one. The big one is the care about these people and their destiny. God does. Huh? God cares about their destiny. He is very interested in their destiny. Second Peter 3, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But where's another verse that says God cares about these unbelievers you're going to talk to? Hey, you just need to act like your father and adopt his attitude about unbelievers. For God so loved, thus loved the world. That's all the unbelievers you'll never meet. All of them. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, I know there are theologians who will say, but there he goes, pastors Arminian. There are Calvinist theologians and pastors. I don't need to name them. If you know them, then you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know them, um, you don't need to, probably. But they'll say, well, that means the world of the elect. And this is where I differ because I cannot superimpose my theology on the Apostle John. In fact, I'm supposed to get my theology from him. I'll be in fellowship with John if I say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's what John says. He says, our fellowship is with God and you can have fellowship with us, the apostles, through our word. So I'm gonna, I wanna be a Christian. I'm just trying to be a Christian. And so what, what do you say about the unbeliever that you meet? God loves that person. How do you know he loved them? Well, because he uh, sent his son to die for their sins. He who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? To just skip from Matthew right over to Romans 8. That's the attitude we carry about God. Now, some of you have been with me through the benefit of doubt discussions. Remember that? Benefit of doubt? Where we, if it differs from what God says, we immediately doubt and say, there's probably something I don't know. Hang on, I'm, I'm going to go study that out. But you don't just absorb contrary statements to what God said. Oh, yeah, yeah, earth is billions. Well, okay, just a second. And then you go find a geologist that believes in Jesus. And you go find a geologist that believes that Moses wrote Genesis. And you go listen to what that geologist says, who believes like you do about Moses and Genesis, and you'll find that he agrees with Moses, and he looks at the rocks and says, this earth looks flooded. See, benefit of doubt is, is a helpful thing in a world that's characterized by deception from Satan. Well, what's, why, do I, why do we need the benefit of doubt? Because the way Satan first attacked the human race is how he still does it. The diabolical implication, remember that? The diabolical implication is in Genesis chapter 3, when, when Satan says, you will not surely die when you eat from the tree, he says, God knows. He, he contradicts the word of God. You won't die. And then he says, here's my explanation. God knows that when you eat from the tree, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. And the implication is that God is a meanie and he's a, he's a Puritan or something. He's trying to restrict your fun and hold you back from the goodies that you want. He's got the keys to the candy store and he's got you locked out. That's the attitude that Satan is spinning there and he doesn't say it, he implies it. And if you don't see this thought about God creep up in your heart when you feel like disobeying him, if you don't see that taint of sin 
that God isn't really good and what he wants for me is better than I could ever want for myself. If you don't see that creep up in yourself, you're not looking closely. We struggle with this. We struggle with this lie that Satan started off with the human race about God being good and loving us. Here's what I'm saying. Big, big theology, big summary of the Bible. If God doesn't want it for me, ooh, I don't want it. It's no, it is absolute poison. If God doesn't want it for me, I don't want it. Premarital sex, you name it. The stimulants that you become addicted to, like don't be drunk with wine or don't be uh, enslaved by wine, and you can roll all the stimulant uh, addic- addictive problems except caffeine into that. <laughs> Some of you are like, Pastor... I'm not sure you can do that with caffeine. I, I, uh, anyway, so um, <laughs> the, the things that God doesn't want me to have, I need to say, I don't want them. By the same token, the things that he wants me to do or to have or to be, I don't want anything to get between me and those things, like the mission. If he says, I want you to go make disciples, you don't want to be like, oh, okay, I got to make disciples. You want to say, that's where the goodies are. That's what's at the end of the rainbow. That's where the gold is. That's where the treasure is. That's where the good things in life are. When God says, this is what I want you to do, we need to be running the race to get to those blessings. Run the race with, with endurance. As I said before you, by removing all the, uh, the <clears throat> encumbrances that hinder you. And so um, that's the way we think about God. That's the way we think about our mission. And uh, so we're talking about goals. The goal of making a disciple by that initial baptism, that the person is baptized, publicly professing their faith in Christ, demonstrating to the world by their own testimony, it's a, it's, they're shouting to the world by, by submitting to baptism that they believe in Jesus Christ, they're born again by the Holy Spirit, they're indwelled by the Spirit, they have uh, resurrection life that's already been given to them, and they're anticipating their future resurrection with Christ. All these things are being stated by a water baptism. There's a lot that has to happen before we can do that, but the first thing is to care about the people. Remember this face? Anybody, anybody uh, remember this guy? Yeah. So um, I, I struggle to find photos that are, uh, that are creative commons that nobody would get me for copyright infringement. So there's a, a later photo of Ed McMahon. I wanted to get one from Star Search, but anyway. Um, do you remember Star Search? No? Come on. That's right. All of y'all who were around in the 80s when Star Search was on, you were in church Sunday night, so thank you. But uh, <laughs> anyway, Star Search was, um, was this show that actually got some people, the, the famous, very wealthy, hundred, hundreds of millionaire type people today, got them started in show business. It was a talent show. Ed McMahon not only uh, said, uh, laughed at Johnny Carson's jokes every night, but he also did this thing on Sunday nights called Star Search. It was this neat thing. It was a talent show. There was a singer, there was stand-up comedians, there, was, um, there, was, uh, there would be a solo lady, a solo man to sing. There'd be a group. Um, Sawyer Brown got started. The famous country band got started on Star Search. Uh, Britney Spears, I believe, lost, but yet um, became, but she really won. I think the same thing with this, this kid, uh, Justin Timber River. Tim, oh, Justin Timberlake. That is yesterday's news, but he's today's money. I mean, this guy's, these people are extremely wealthy because they got started here in this little national talent show uh, while you and I were in church on Sunday night. But anyway, um, uh, Ed McMahon's little motto for Star Search was this. This is Star Search where we reach 
for the sea. I did watch it sometimes. We reach out for the stars and touch them. That was kind of how we reach out for the stars and touch them. Remember his little his big 80s glasses that kind of had, had all the time tint because he was kind of doing the star, like the, the, the Hollywood star thing. Anyway, Ed McMahon, Star Search. The question I want to ask in introducing this is what are you, what are you going for? What's your life's objective? Um, in Star Search, the objective was fame. It really was fame and fortune. And there are people that went through that and made it. They, the, there is money involved in success in show business. Singing with auto-tuners, songs middle-aged men wrote, these girls dancing around in their underwear singing these songs are hundred millionaires. We're talking por- portional, like, like fractional billionaire. They're a quarter of a billionaire from doing this. And you're like... That's something that could happen. It could happen to you. None of you musicians here. But see, what they're going for is fame. And with fame, very often comes fortune. But if you adopt a biblical view of your mission, of what God actually has you doing, this is a distraction. This is a total waste of time. A total waste of time. You only have so many days. 365 times 80 you know, plus or minus. You only have a very finite number of days to suffer in this broken world with the straining of, against the sin nature while empowered by the Holy Spirit to be part of the Lord Jesus' mission. You only have now. There will be no opportunity to do this after this life. So if we're not on mission and we have the wrong goals, of course, we're out there doing whatever. One of the things people go for is fame. Another thing people look for is, uh, is material contentment. I want to say material contentment. Just have my life with a certain level of ease. I'm not trying to go be famous. I don't care. I wanna, I'd rather be anonymous, but I kind of want to be at ease in my life. Well, you can't be on mission and have that as a goal. You just can't. It's not an option. Not the way Jesus ran with the mission. You've got to take up your cross daily and follow him. You've got to look at the Apostle Paul. You know, they call him the Apostle of the Bloody Nose. It's not comfortable to go talk to a stranger in a, in a categorical lifestyle pattern of sin. I guarantee you a lifestyle pattern of sin that is repugnant to the character of Christ. And the more you adopt Christ's character, the more that sin is repugnant to you. And it may be a sin that you don't struggle with. And you need to talk to that person and love that person with the truth of Jesus Christ over a long haul. That is, that's not ease. That's pain. That's, that's calling for some endurance. And so the question is, what are your goals? Now, now I, I use Ed McMahon and Star Search and hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, today's thing, I, I'm sorry for throwing A's at you guys. This is the American Idol. It's the same thing. These people get their start in American Idol. There's this girl that was one of the first American Idols. I think she might have been the first, named Kelly. She is one of the top recording artists in pop music today. And she probably does use auto-tune, but she doesn't have to. It's just popular. It's just a sound people like. But this girl has an incredible voice. Kelly Clarkson, she's got a great voice. I'm not talking about being a consumer of pop culture. I'm just saying she has a wonderful gift from God as a, as a musician. 
I don't like this genre of music she sings, but I'm just saying she's a powerful singer. And um, uh, she's got fame and fortune. And it's American Idol. It's the same exact thing, except they're a little more honest today, right? American Idol, you get it? It's the same thing, but she's not the idol. Fame is the idol. Wealth is the idol. And so we get the wrong goals. What are your goals? Here's my understanding of the Christian mission and what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The goal is 2 Corinthians 5, 9. My aim, ambition is a really good translation, is to be pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to, rescinder, to, to, to receive recompense for what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. The evaluation won't be what my bank account holds. The evaluation won't be how many people are following me on Twitter. The evaluation is you're actually playing to an audience of one your whole life, every choice. You're already as famous as you'll ever be with Jesus because he's interested and watching. Lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age, he says. I'm always with you all the days. I'll be with you even to the end of the age. You're as famous as you'll ever be with Jesus Christ. The question is, are you performing in a manner that pleases him? It's not about fame and notoriety. He knows you. He knows your frame. He knows your weaknesses. He knows that you have the Holy Spirit, and he knows what you're capable of. And he knows that the struggle that you're going through as you row in the boat against the weather, as you're, as you're with the disciples rowing across the, lake, the Sea of Galilee, he knows that that's a struggle. He knows that when he walks up to the boat, you're going to be tired and, and misunderstand. And then when, they, when, when he stills the waves and calms the storm, that you're going to be amazed at the God you serve. He knows that. It's part of your life. It's how he's designed the life that we're living. And so uh, what's our goal? That's a really important question to get a good answer to. I want to see the goal, the near-term goal. Before I get to the judgment seat of Christ, I know I'm on the path to pleasing him if I'm baptizing people, if I'm making disciples by baptizing new converts, And if I'm teaching all converts to keep or observe all that Jesus commanded, I know that I've got a good outcome at the the real payout. I know the judgment seat of Christ is going to go really well if if I'm on mission now. Now, to do this, to think this way today and tomorrow and for the rest of your life and to not be taken in by concern about the things we get hung up on, You have to walk by faith, not by sight. You have to believe Jesus really has a mission for you. You have to believe there's a real judgment seat of Christ. You have to believe that even if everyone else around you doesn't believe in Christ and doesn't consider the mission the focus of your life and the goal his pleasure, even if no one around you or in your culture thinks this way, you need to think this way because it's coming. It's settled. This is what is real. We walk by faith, not by sight. It's a challenge at times. But it becomes less challenging to do this the more I'm in the Word. Why? It's less challenging to do this, make disciples' focus of life with its suffering embedded. Why is it easier? You in the back. Yeah. Why is it easier to walk by faith, not by sight, the more I spend time in the Word? Because my attention is on the things of God. If I'm in the Word, 
then I'm growing and I'm thinking God's thoughts. So the goal. Now, what are the implied tasks for the specified tasks of baptizing and teaching? What are the implied tasks is the question we're asking tonight. We said you have to talk to people. You have to care about them. You've got to show them that you care about them. You have to keep the conversation going. But it's not just to get along. It's not just to make friends. It's not just to get more Facebook friends. Right? It's not just about the things that we get distracted by. It's not about them. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and their eternal life with him. So I've got my eye on the prize of them being baptized. And that's my agenda. Have you ever gone into a relationship with an agenda? Doesn't that sound... Wait a second. That's, that's, that's not, you, don't, you don't go into relationships with prior conceived ideas about how you're going to change the person. Yes, you do. Because the lake of fire is real. This is the only agenda I would challenge you to enter into any friendship, any relationship with. Is this person is, is either with Christ forever or separated from him forever. And so I do have an agenda. You confront it. Don't be dis- dishonest. Hey, I've got an interest in you that it goes all the way to the very core of your being. And I don't know you very well, but I do have an interest, and it is in your eternal life. And, and well, so the person's going to get defensive if you share. Hey, just don't ever forget as you're dealing with people why you're dealing with them. Don't ever forget every opportunity. You ever, you ever give as good as you get? You ever give back like you receive? It's easy to do that in Connecticut. It's easy to get uh, somebody to kind of drop their guard of professionalism and be a a jerk. It is never, you never initiate jerkiness, but have you ever given back as good as you've gotten? I mean, some of the ladies are like, yeah, he has. (laughs) Ever have just the right words to say? I mean, the wrong words to say, but they fit. Hey, we're going to play puzzles. You said this and you're getting this from me. I mean, I'm the only one. Okay. Um, You know, when you do that, though, you're missing the opportunity in front of you to keep the conversation going, to say, this is is not about whatever I'm making it about in the moment. It's hard to do that. There are some people in your life, I'll say, though, be careful. There are some people in your life that you need to pray about them and pray for them and not spend a lot of time working with them. There are people in your life like that. Right, and part of Christian wisdom is the shrewdness to know the difference. This is tonight is about discernment and wisdom. It really is. The wisdom to know that if I'm going to baptize this person here, then way, way, way back over here, they need to know I care about them, so they'll listen. Eventually, they'll hear the message, and I'll be able to show them the message while I'm telling them the message. And it may be a long time. And it may be five years in, they're like, I know you believe in Jesus as your Savior, and that if I believe in Christ, that I'll have eternal life, and I need to trust him. But these are my following problems with that. Don't close the door. We're five years in. You're just getting started. Keep working. Keep talking. Keep loving. Oh, I'm, you know, I understand where you're coming from. I see what you're saying about these concerns. But I'm going to keep praying for you. Oh, you go ahead and keep praying for me. You wait 15 years later. 15 years later, they're, they're right next to you making disciples with you. We just have to be um, taking an eternal perspective on it. If I'm going to make disciples of all the nations, what does that look like? What do I need to do to, to, to be able to disregard that? First of all, implication is that the gospel message and, and the, the Christ of Scripture, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, is, 
equally needful in every cultural context. This Jewish man who never left his neighborhood, so to speak, he never went 100 miles away from his home, from his birthplace, is equally needful for every human being on planet Earth, regardless of what kind of food they eat or what they think about marital customs or how they go to the bathroom in the jungle or whatever it is. The cultural differences that become issues for us of etiquette and, uh, and custom these are irrelevant to the need of eternal life. And so what's the implication of I'm going to the nations? I've got to learn how to present the universally applicable message in this aspect of diversity. I've got to learn a language. We've got to go undo Babel enough to share Christ. It's, it's hard enough to do this with someone in your own culture. Go to where they are, Show your concern for them, to love them with the love of Jesus, not the love of me, the love of Jesus, for his sake, and to not approve of sin, but to recognize, recognize what we do about sin. It's Jesus. That's how I'm not doing these sins they're, they're engaged in. It's Jesus. So how, how you do that in your own language, that's one thing. Leave your culture. Go to a completely foreign set of customs. This is why we do set aside these foreign missions and spend so much effort and energy and resources because to be able to do this is actually very challenging. To enculturate the universally applicable message. I mean, I don't believe that I need to translate my Bible from English into target language. I don't think that's my goal. If I have to, I will. But that's really not my goal. My ultimate goal is to take those Hebrew scriptures and bring them into that target language. To take that Greek New Testament and bring it into the target language of the foreigner. You see what I mean? That's, this gets into King James only thing. And, and what do you do for Spanish speakers with your King James? Well, there's a Spanish King James. That's my favorite. Or the Chinese King James. I'm like, okay. What, what we're saying is, that there's so much that goes before you baptize someone. There's so much that goes before you can teach. You know, what's, let's close down on this. What's the implication of teaching people to keep all that Jesus commanded? What's, what, are some implica- what do you have to have in place to do that? <laughs> yeah, knowledge. You need to know what Jesus' commands are. Know, knowing what is one thing. What about knowing how? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded means to do it. So you not only have to know what he said, you have to know how to do it. Right? Like love. I don't think Americans know how to love. Is that, is that an offensive statement? I don't think we in our culture have a clue about love. We think love is a, is a goddess. We're Greek about it. We think love is a compelling force. And furthermore, the Greeks at least had four or five words for, for love. We've got one and throw it all against it. Sex, you know, grandma, everything. It's all the same. It's love. It's all love. But we don't even know what love is. We don't know how to do it. We don't know what we're doing. And so we say love is this compulsion. I feel this compulsion. So we get married because we feel it. And by the way, we're made to marry. So a lot of times men finally give in and we, we marry. Until we don't feel this compulsion anymore. And well, I guess we've grown apart. 
and now we need our second go. We're crazy. We don't even know what love is. Love starts with a commitment. Y'all know the deal. Love is a commitment to meet the other person's needs as God would direct, and that's Christian love. That's agape. And that's a completely different, that's just completely foreign. We're talking alien talk now. I might as well be preaching Sanskrit to tell uh, the unbelieving world around me about Christian love. But I can show them my concern. I can show them meeting their needs. I can say, this is coming from God. I can say, I don't really have this in me except that God puts this in me as they get to know me. Well, you know, you really, uh, you really do mean what you say. And then we're off to the races with the gospel. You have to know what God said. You have to know how to do what he said, right, to, in order to teach it. What else do you have to have if you're going to teach someone to keep all that Jesus commanded. This is the one that really convicts me. How? How do you mean consistency? In our own lives. I have to be walking by the Spirit in order to equip someone else to do it, right? I need to be living the life that I'm teaching someone else to live if I'm going to teach someone else to live it, right? Now, Paul says he can preach and uh, not receive the benefit, because he doesn't, he doesn't do as he says, which is true. But I'm talking about it, as you come alongside someone in their lives and you say, hey, you know, we need to be about, be about prayer and the word. You need to be the person that can show them by example what it's like to be about prayer and the word. I'm not gonna ask you to raise hands and, uh, and convict yourself, but I do want you to think about this. How good are you at a prayer, at praying with a stranger? Nobody in here is good at that, including me. It's hard. It's scary. It's weird. And the stranger thinks it's weird. But let me ask you this. How good are you at taking your mom and your dad and saying, hey, can we pray together? Adults? Adults with adult parents? That's the only kind. How good are you at taking someone that you know very well and very intimately and saying, let's pray together about it? For the most part in America, in American evangelical dumb, we don't. We have no idea how to come alongside even the closest people to us and say, let's pray. Now let's convict ourselves and say, husbands, how close are you? At, how good are you at uh, taking your wife by the hand and saying, let's talk to God about it? We don't as often as we should. And so uh, this is where we start. This whole thing begins, the big stated thing. Oh, wait, see, I, used to, I don't even walk here because I'm trained for 11 years not to walk in front of the projector, but I don't have to worry about it anymore. We go way over here before we ever even talk to the person, and we start in prayer. You bring your brothers and sisters together, we pray for that person, and you concern yourself about them. We did it tonight in our prayer meeting. We prayed for a person that we want to see come to Christ, that we've met, a few of us have met. And so that's what we do. We pray for these people, and Look for God to open the door. And you're already concerned for them. They're already yours in that sense, that you're concerned and you love them with the love of Jesus Christ. And then you're down the line. Eventually, you're going to have that conversation that starts the ball rolling. And um, that's how it seems we have to consider the mission. Boy, that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of uh, implications, a lot of implied tasks if we're going to baptize someone. It's way better to do it this way than to hit people over the head and drag them down by the river to baptize them. That's not going to get any disciples. You're going to actually have to love them with the love of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we love you. We uh, don't just say so, though. It's not good enough for us just to say so. But, Father, somehow if we don't say it, we're falling short. We do love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. This is what we are to train our children to do, Father. It's what we are to be about. 
Father, I pray for every heart present tonight, the hearing of my voice, that the love which is which we're bound to have toward you would shine forth in our hearts in the in the witness of others, that other people would see that we do love you. That as Jesus said, that we do love one another and show and therefore show that you've sent the Son. Father, this is a huge challenge you've given us. It's so easy to disregard it. In fact, that's the way of the worldly church in our time. But for us, Father, and, and we pray for the church, universal, let us be on mission. Let us exhibit the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that doesn't approve of sin, but shows the solution to personal sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.